0: Good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, and if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 12. And as you're turning there, let me just say that the Bible is filled with fascinating people and people that the Lord used in remarkable ways. And I think one of the most fascinating is the Old Testament figure, Abraham, a man who lived about 4,000 years ago. And today we're going to consider Abraham's life through the lens of a single verse. That's Genesis 18, verse 19. And as we walk through this verse together, I trust we'll learn a lot about the man Abraham. But Even more importantly than that, this being Father's Day, I hope we'll learn a lot about the nature of fatherhood from this verse. So allow me to read it for you as we begin, then I'll offer a word of prayer, and we will take a close look at the passage together this morning. So verse 19, the Lord says this of Abraham, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we do thank you so much for this Sunday morning, your day, a day that we can gather as a church family and give you the worship that you are due And we thank you for the fellowship that we get to enjoy with one another as fellow believers in your Son. Lord, I pray that as we open your word now, as as we delve into its contents, you would work these words into our hearts. Lord, especially for the men here today, would you impress upon them both the, the privilege and the weight of fatherhood. Lord, those of us who have children, help us to learn how to become the kinds of fathers that would be honoring to you. For those who anticipate becoming fathers one day, begin to work these lessons into them now so that they are ready when their child is born. Lord, we want you to be glorified in our lives, in our families, as well as in our church. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now we begin with the first five words of the verse. Again, the Lord says of Abraham, For I have known him, or I have chosen him. And this speaks to Abraham's election by God. And friends, the doctrine of election is one of the most precious truths in all of the Bible. You see, according to the Bible, every one of us is a sinner by nature and by choice. And that sin runs deep. And it's not flattering to hear that, but it's true. The sin runs deep. It affects our thinking, our feeling, our willing, and our doing. And because of this uh, internal sin nature, we are also not naturally inclined to pursue after God. We're not naturally interested in following His ways. And of course, this separates us from God and it puts us on a trajectory toward death and hell. But friends, the Bible also teaches us that God loves this world. He is moved with compassion for it. And out of God's love, he has chosen to redeem some and to call them, to save them, to justify them, sanctify them and glorify them, make them his own people. And it's not based on any inherent goodness that he sees in them, but based entirely on his own mercy and grace. And indeed, God chose his people before the world was even born. That's what Ephesians 1 verse 4 says. It says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And friends, it is God's choosing of us which enables our choosing of him leading to our salvation In time. It's a wonderful truth of God, and it should humble you as you think about the love of God for you, and it should cause you to praise Him for His grace in your life. According to Genesis 18 19, Abraham was one of God's chosen. The story of how Abraham's election turned into Abraham's salvation is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12. You don't need to turn there, but I'll summarize its contents. As Genesis chapter 12 opens, we find Abraham. He's about 75 years old, and he's living in the land of Ur, which is near the Persian Gulf. And Abraham had lived his entire life away from God. He had worshipped idols. He was a deeply immoral man, never even gave a, a thought to God all his life long. But there at the age of 75, God came to him. God took the initiative, and God spoke to Abraham. See, God did that before the scriptures were complete. He would reveal himself with an audible voice to select individuals. God spoke to Abraham, and and God said to Abraham, I am the true and living God. I am your creator, and you must listen to me. And then he said to Abraham, Abraham, I have a plan for your life. I want you to walk away from Ur, leave behind everything that you've ever known, and I want you to follow me to a new land. God said to Abraham, You don't know this land. You've never been there before, but I know it. It's your promised land, and I want you to go follow me to this new place. And then God attached a promise to this. He said, And if you do this, I will make your name great. I will make of you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was God's calling on Abraham. And how did Abraham respond? Well, the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God. And God counted it to him for righteousness. So friends, this is the moment when God's eternal election of Abraham became a reality in history. And Abraham was justified in that moment. God spoke to him. God called him to himself. God called him to embrace the mission for which God had made him. And Abraham said, yes, God, I believe in you. I will trust you. I will go and I will follow you. And God took that faith, that saving faith, wiped out Abraham's record of sin, gave him a new righteous standing before him, and this began a new life for Abraham. As the book of Genesis unfolds, we learn more and more about this man, Abraham, and we learn more about the plan that God had in store for him. Finally, we come to Genesis chapter 15, where God again speaks to Abraham. This time, it's late at night, not a cloud in the sky, and God led Abraham, out of his tent, said to Abraham, Look up at the night sky. Count the stars if you can. He said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. So God had chosen Abraham. He had saved him. He had led Abraham on this journey to a new land. He had promised to bless all nations through Abraham. And now, in Genesis 15, we begin to learn how God was going to do it. How was God going to use Abraham to become a blessing to all the nations of the earth? He was going to do it by making Abraham a father. He's going to make him a father. Isn't that remarkable? Such a simple thing. But God was going to make Abraham a father. And as Abraham fulfilled his fatherly responsibilities, he was going to set a series of things in motion which would culminate in blessing for the entire world. That was God's plan for him. And if you understand Abraham at the time, you also know this promise was a really big deal because Abraham and his wife were childless. And now they are in old age. So God was going to have to perform a miracle in this couple's life. Beyond their childbearing years, God was going to have to bless them with their own son. The son's name would be Isaac. And he would be born to Abraham and his wife when he was about 100 years old. Just one son, But my friends, through this one son, Isaac, Abraham's family tree would begin to grow and to spread out. Abraham would eventually become the fountainhead of the entire Jewish race. Do you understand that every Jewish person today traces their lineage back to this man, Abraham, and to his son, Isaac, and the children that were born to them? And out of the Jewish race would come the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one whose life, death, and resurrection would secure the salvation of all of his people. So this is how God was going to bless all the world through Abraham. The Messiah himself would come through Abraham's line, but it would start thousands of years earlier with one little boy born to this one elderly couple, and this father being a father to his son. So my friends, Abraham's calling was a remarkable calling. Chosen by God for salvation, chosen by God to leave everything he'd ever known to go to a new promised land, chosen by God to become a father, eventually a father to multiplied millions of, The physical father of all the Jewish people, the spiritual father of all who would believe in his descendant, Jesus. This is why we sometimes refer to Abraham as Father Abraham. But Friends, as we move into the middle of verse 19, we see now that with Abraham's tremendous calling also came a tremendous responsibility. Verse 19 says, For I have chosen him, now here's the purpose, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So God called Abraham to be his own child. Then he called Abraham to have a child. He was also calling Abraham to fulfill the responsibilities of a father to that child. And God spells out the responsibilities of fatherhood right there in the middle of the verse. As a father, it would be Abraham's responsibility to, quote, command his progeny to keep to the way of the Lord. And the Hebrew word translated command here speaks of providing authoritative direction To others. And and in this context specifically, to provide authoritative spiritual direction to his progeny. So we see here that a father's primary task from a biblical perspective is not to supply his kids with a beautiful home or to give them lots and lots of toys. Or to give them annual vacations to exotic places. No, if God should allow you to do that, fathers, that could be a wonderful blessing for your kids. But that's not the primary job that you hold. Your main job is to use all of the authority and influence and the energy and the time that you have to take all of that. And to try to move your family in the direction of godliness. That's your main job. It's to compel them, as it were, to keep to the way of the Lord. You see, there are many different paths that a child can go down. Scriptures speak of the path of fools, uh, the path of scorners. There's the path of the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites. There are thousands and thousands of different paths that a child can go down. Of course, Jesus all summarizes it all by saying all of these little paths are part of just one great big super highway that leads to destruction. And what good is it for your children to grow up in a nice home with lots of toys if they're on that highway to destruction? You see, if you're called to be a father, as Abraham was, it means your job is to do everything in your power to keep your children off that superhighway and to get them onto the narrow way which leads to life, the way which our text further clarifies as the way of righteousness and justice. It's the way of faith and piety and moral uprightness. It's the way of the Lord. And friends, this was Abraham's great burden. God gave him a great calling, but he would have to fulfill this task. He would have to be a father to the child that God gave him. He would have to use every single resource that he possessed to to compel his children to move in a Godward direction. And then you'll also notice from the verse that he wasn't just to think about his own immediate children... But Abraham was called to have a long-term vision as well. It says, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So, yes, command your children to do this, but then also your household after you. means Abraham was called to think about his son, but then also his son's children and their children and their children after them. Abraham was to live and to teach in such a way that he would set his entire family line on a trajectory of long-term godliness. He was called to build a legacy. My friends, I've noted this before, that our lives are like pebbles dropped in a still pond. That pebble is seen just for a moment, and then it's gone under the water. But what happens when you drop that pebble? It creates these ripples. And the ripples extend far beyond the diameter of that stone, and they last far longer than that stone. That's our lives We're here for a moment, and then our lives are gone, but our lives make an impact, and the ripples of our lives carry on far longer than our own days. And our lives will reverberate for generations for good or for evil. Back in 1900, an author named A.E. Winship wrote a book that I think beautifully illustrates this point. His book was entitled a study in education and heredity. And this book looked at the family lines of two individuals. The first was Jonathan Edwards. Now, a lot of you know him. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan minister living in colonial New England. He's also the famous preacher of America's First Great Awakening. Well, Winship looked at Edwards's family line, and this is what he found. His progeny included... One vice president, two U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. Now, wow, that is a legacy. One godly man on fire for the things of the Lord set a course for his family that lasted generation after generation. But then there was this other family that Winship studied in his book. This man's name was Max Jukes. Now, Max was born roughly the same time as Jonathan Edwards, but he wasn't like Edwards. This man was a drunkard, and he also had no discernible religious principles. Well, what did his descendants look like? According to the author, his descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, at least 50 prostitutes, 310 paupers who spent a combined 2,300 years living in poor houses, and 400 people physically wrecked by self-indulgent living. Now, granted, these may be two extreme examples, Edwards and Jukes, but it does illustrate the point, does it not? that we set a trajectory for our households that extends far beyond our own lifespans. We can set patterns that last generation after generation. And by the way that we live our lives today, by the kinds of moms and dads that we are to our children, we can set them on a path, which in turn will set their kids on a path, which will set their kids on a path. And on and on it goes. Friends, this is why God's final judgment of us does not occur the moment after we die. Instead, it comes at the end of human history because it's not till the end of all things that the full impact of our lives will be known. So Abraham was called to salvation, but Abraham was also called to be a father. With that calling came a tremendous responsibility. Using all the authority and influence that he had as a father, he had to work to build a long-term legacy of godliness for his family. Then, as we come to the end of verse 19, we see the reward which God would bestow if Abraham was faithful. Again, the verse says, "...for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, here's the final purpose, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So here we see this interaction between sovereignty of God over all things, but the responsibility of man to fulfill what God has spoken The final words of this verse are incredible. God chose Abraham for salvation. God called him to be a father. God called him to go to this promised land. God made some tremendous promises to Abraham. He said his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. He said all nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham. But notice that the fulfillment of all of these promises to Abraham was conditional upon Abraham's obedience. It says, Abraham must be a good father to his children so that the Lord may bring these promises to pass. Implication, if Abraham doesn't fulfill the responsibilities, God is not obligated to fulfill the promise. So then, if Abraham took his calling seriously, if he was a good father to his son... And if he set his family on a long-term trajectory of faithfulness, Abraham would see all of these promises fulfilled and more. But if he shirked his responsibilities, if if he was a deadbeat dad or an indifferent dad, if he was a bad father to his child, none of the wonderful promises God made would ever happen. Now, thank God, Abraham was faithful. He fulfilled his task well. And we know that it was in God's plan and purpose for Abraham, his chosen man, to be faithful. Because of Abraham's faithfulness, first as a a man, then as a father, the entire world truly was blessed as a line of godliness was established, leading all the way to Jesus of Nazareth, a descendant of, of Abraham and a son of God, the one who would come, live, die, and rise again for our sakes, for the sake of the whole world. Now, men, let's apply this more specifically to fatherhood. Christian fathers, in particular, like Abraham, God has chosen you for a very special purpose. God chose you to receive His salvation, and He has also chosen you to be a father to a child. Fathers, do you understand just what an unspeakable privilege that is? Look, I know that fatherhood is really hard at times. I mean, when they're young, it means you're changing diapers, and you're constantly fixing things that they break, and you're constantly cleaning up things that they spill, and it means that you're, if you have more than one child, you're constantly breaking up fights, and there are all these frustrations that come with fatherhood. Then there are the more difficult things, like submitting your own career ambitions to the needs of your kids. Not accepting certain responsibilities because you have responsibilities to your kids. And as your kids continue to grow up, it gets harder and harder because now you've got to help them navigate their teenage years and dating and relationships. And you're trying to help grow them into independent adults. It is a hard thing to be a father, it's exhausting, it's emotionally draining work. But you know, it's an unspeakable privilege, too. When God allows you to conceive a child, do you understand what he is doing? He is enabling you to bring into existence a living soul. One that has never existed before. And it's a soul made in the very image of God. It's a soul of inestimable worth. And made for God's glory. And it's a living soul which will one day see God face to face. And God has allowed you to bring this into being. And guide that living soul right through their days. And as with Abraham, men, that privilege comes with tremendous responsibility. Responsibility. God expects each one of us to use all of the authority and the influence and the time and the energy and the money that we have and everything else that we have and to direct it all toward the task of bringing our children up in the nurture and admonition to the Lord. To compel our children if such a thing is possible to keep them in the way of the Lord. That is our great burden. It's also our great joy, fathers. And how will we do it? Well, dads, here's how. First of all, we're going to do it with a lot of prayer. A lot of prayer. Because we know it's going to have to be God working in our kids. We're going to have to pray for each one of our children by name, and in accordance with their strengths and weaknesses. We're going to have to pray for God's work in each one of their lives. And we're going to have to pray for ourselves, too. God, give me the wisdom to to be able to discern the needs of my child, to see where they need extra help, where they need encouragement, where they need correction, Give me the words to say so that they'll they'll know my love for them. But they'll see their need to, to come uh, into the narrow way. We need to pray with our children. When we wake up with them in the morning or when we... Tuck them in at night as we go with them throughout the day. We need to pray with our kids so they hear us communicating with God, so they know that we love them and that we want their spiritual growth. And we need to be praying for all of the supporting institutions who will come alongside us and help us raise our children. We need to pray for our local church. Pray for your Christian school if your child is in a Christian school. Pray for the extended family that every influence in your child's life would be used of God to show them the beauty of the narrow way and it would place them upon it. That's the first thing we've got to do, dads. And the second thing we've got to do, we've got to lead by example. As the fathers of our children... God calls us to exemplify godly manhood in our homes. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. God calls us to be living, breathing, flesh and blood representations of Christ to our children so that the life of faith will look as attractive to them as possible. That's what God calls us to do. And men, God calls us thirdly to teach our children, to teach them. As the father in that household, it is... Our job to instill biblical truths into our kids at every opportunity. And not to delegate it just to others. Not to say, look, I bring them to church and they're taught the Bible in church. Or their mom is a better speaker than I am. I'm giving it all to mom. It's not for us to say, look, I'm paying this Christian school tuition. They can take the lead in this. No. You're the dad. You're the leader of the household. It's your responsibility you must teach your children. They need to hear biblical truth from you. And that includes those planned moments like times of family worship or maybe evening devotions. When when you gather with your children and you open a Bible to them and you read some of the Bible... And then you ask them what they think about the passage they've read, and you tell them some of your thoughts about the passage. And if they have any questions about that day's reading, you help them answer their questions. If you don't know the answer, you've got a smartphone. You can try to look it up. Or on Sunday, you can try to catch one of the pastors of your church and and find the answers for your kids. But have those planned moments. Have, have father-son camp. Have family camps. Have have a time after church services, maybe during lunch when you talk about the things of God together. But let them hear scripture truth from you, Christian man. And then, of course, those unplanned moments. Like those moments when your your young child comes out of his bedroom late at night and you're still awake, but but you thought he was asleep. But he comes out and he says, Dad, I'm scared. You say, Why are you scared? And and your child says, Well, I'm scared of monsters. You say, Oh, tell me about these monsters. And they say, Well, I just I know they're not real, but my in my mind I just keep seeing all of these monsters, and I can't go to sleep because I'm so unsettled. Well, is that not a wonderful opportunity given to you by God to instill? biblical truth into your kids like saying to them you know monsters aren't real right and they say yes well let me tell you something that is real god is real and even when you're asleep god is still awake and his eyes are on you all night long And God loves you. And God's going to look after you. And God has put a mommy and a daddy in this house too. And your mommy and your daddy make sure that you are safe every night. You can go to sleep. I promise you, it will be okay. You can trust in God. You can trust the protection that God is providing to you. And you can teach them to have faith in God. There's so many times, unplanned, When we can speak biblical truth to our kids. There's a fourth thing that we can do, Christian fathers. We can make leadership decisions for the spiritual well being of our families. Make decisions. If God has called you to be a father, He's called you to be a decision maker. That includes decisions like these. You will say to your kids, In our family, we get up and we go to church on Sundays but dad, I'm tired, but dad, I don't want to go, but dad, it's too loud. In our church, in our family, we go to church. Or we say, you know, in our home, we follow the will of God, so we don't lie to each other. We don't steal from each other. We don't We don't um, mistreat each other. We don't, we don't hit each other in this household. We don't abuse each other. We don't call names in this house. These things are not God's will for our family. And for any parent who might be hesitant to establish moral and spiritual rules for your household, can I just remind you that you have a thousand other rules in your house? Surely... Fathers, you have a rule that your kid has to take a bath once in a while, right? So you don't want that kid around the house after 10 days of being unwashed, right? You, you make them, whether they want to or not, whether they're in the mood for it or not, you make them take a bath. You make them wash, uh, brush their teeth. You don't let them play ball in the street. You don't let them drive your car if they're five years old. Right? You have all kinds of rules for your kids. Why on earth would you want to exempt them from moral and spiritual rules while they're under your roof? Aren't those the most important of all? Say You will not play in the highway, but you will get up and get dressed and go to church on Sunday mornings. Or you will brush your teeth, and you will not lie in this household. You have rules for both. And this is how we will do what is in our power to ensure that our kids understand the way of the Lord, they have an opportunity to take that step onto the narrow way, and that they stay their life long. Now, we can't control what they do once they're out from under our roof, but we can use our God-given authority when they're under our roof to set them up for spiritual success. And then there's a fifth thing that we fathers can do. We can offer measured and consistent discipline. Okay? Both of those words are key there. Measured and consistent discipline. Because, you see, rules in the house are meaningless if they're not enforced. And a good father will enforce the rules. He's not a good father if he doesn't. That includes rewarding good behavior. So when you see one of your children give a toy to another child, or you see maybe your high school student has stood up for a bullied kid in school, you publicly praise them for that. Reward the right behavior so they know this is praiseworthy. But then you also punish bad behavior. Punishment that is age-appropriate and proportionate to the nature of the offense, but which will also do the work of deterring them from doing those things any further. Men, this is what God calls us to do as fathers. We're called to lead our children in the way of the Lord. And He's given us a lot of tools to achieve our goal. We have prayer, We have our own personal example. We have teaching God's word to them. We have establishing rules for our households that accord with godliness. And we have measured and consistent discipline to keep them on the right path. And my friends, while God does not promise a certain outcome to our labors as he did for Abraham, yet it is generally the case that active godly fathers will produce A godly progeny. It is generally true that this happens. And men, this will be your greatest legacy. It won't be the business you built, won't be all the books you wrote, won't be anything but the children that you raised. And they raised their kids, and they raised their kids. A godly heritage that spans generations. That That is your greatest legacy. Generations of men and women who will fill the ranks of Christ's church, who will serve their generation with zeal, and who will ensure that a living witness continues to thrive on the earth until our Lord returns. Now let's pray as we close our service together. Lord, thank you for how you worked in Abraham's life. Thank you for calling him to salvation, calling him to be a father, and then using him as a father to begin that process, which would culminate in the arrival of his descendant, your son Jesus, and then the great climactic work of history as he made atonement for the sins of the world, and then the spreading of the gospel to all nations. And Lord, we know that you can use us Not in that exact way, but you can use us in an analogous way. If we will be godly fathers, if we will instruct our children in the way of the Lord, Lord, we know that if we will do that, you might just see fit to give us a long-term legacy of godliness, that the ripple effect of our lives will extend far beyond the years that we live It will extend to our children's lifespans and their children's and their children's, reaping a harvest of good until the end of time when you should return. Lord, help us to take our responsibilities seriously. Help us to realize that every day, every hour that you give us is precious, that it can be leveraged for these purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.